what does success look like for a local church? How should a church market itself? Should a church market itself? Is success determined by the leadership of a denomination, the local newspaper, the pastor? Must a successful church have a lot of programs for their members? Must a successful church have proper signage in a spacious and well-lit parking lot? Do the Sunday school teachers have to have seminary degrees? How do you measure the success of a local church? And how does God measure the success of a local church? I get asked the question all the time as a pastor, how are things going at the church? And usually what they mean is, is the church going well? Is it successful? Everyone has their own idea of success, whether it's the, your, your physical health, your business, or, or your family's budget, even your local church. Everyone has their own idea what is successful. Unfortunately, uh, we may not realize how easily our definition of success is influenced by our culture. American success usually is associated with, with bigness. American success usually connects to the growth of the number of people that you have or your money or the, the number of programs that you offer. Therefore, a church in our society is successful if it has more money, more people, and more activities than the year before. But is that success? Is that how God would define success? As a pastor, one of the ways that I measure success for our church is that if we are we growing in our love for God, our love for each other, and our love for the lost. Are we growing in our love for God primarily? I want to see a greater love in our church for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see a greater desire to grow in the word of God, a greater desire to grow in, in holiness and righteousness. Our congregation should be marked by a holy love for God. But I also ask, are we growing in love for each other? Are we growing in a self-sacrificial spirit, a concern for each other? Are we bearing with each other's burdens? Are we rejoicing in each other's happiness and, and joys? Are we growing together as a family? Are we practicing the one another's? Our congregation should be marked by a holy love for each other. But not only that, our, our love, our congregation should be marked by a holy love for the lost. Are we sharing regularly sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are perishing, those who are, are lost. Beloved, I pray that we would always hold fast to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, that there, that there was one way to God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no other name under heaven which man can be saved but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the door that leads to heaven. And sadly, more and more churches are defining their success not by their holding fast to the gospel of Christ, but them growing in people, in money, and in programs. Those are all good things, beloved. But we should never look at those things as being a success. We should always look at are we loving God, are we loving each other, and are we loving those who are lost. The Church of Philadelphia, which we look at this morning, was a failure in the eyes of the world. If you looked at their, their church, they were small in number and they had little impact on the community. They were ridiculed and maligned 
by the religious leaders of the day. And yet, they were faithful. They were faithful to Jesus Christ. Philadelphia, along with Smyrna, one of these other seven churches, were the only two churches that were not rebuked by Jesus Christ. I pray as we study this letter that we would truly learn what true biblical success is by seeing what the Lord values in his church. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to look at characteristics of the Lord Jesus in this passage. Number one, the one who holds the keys. The one who holds the keys. The great question that Israel was concerned with in the Old Testament is, how can I be right with God? How do I attain righteousness? How do I, when I die, meet God and be okay? Right here at the beginning of this letter, Jesus establishes himself that he is the one who holds the key. Look at Revelation 3.7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus defines himself as holy, as set apart from the world, but also true, meaning genuine. He is, he is set apart and he is genuine. He holds the key of David. Now, you would think that is readily uh, talked about in the Old Testament. It only appears in one verse, the verse that Paige read to you earlier, uh, Isaiah 22, uh, 22 and 23. It's really speaking to Elohim, right? Isaiah says of Elohim in verse 22, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of the honor of his father's house. Elohim was going to be the one who determined who was allowed to enter the sanctuary of, of God. He was going to determine who was able to enter God's house, i.e. who was going to receive salvation, who was able to enter the kingdom of God. There were Jews in Philadelphia that were saying to the church, you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You are going to be shut out, excluded. And Jesus wanted to say, no, there is only one who can exclude. There is only one who can welcome in, and that is me. I am the true and holy one who holds the key of David. Now, this reference to Elohim in Isaiah 22 would have been a clear reference to the, to the original audience, this was, was preluding or a, a foreshadowing of the Messiah. There's several reasons. I'll give you four. Number one, the house of David is almost always a reference to the Messiah. So when you read your New Testament, you see the house of David. You should be thinking that this is messianic. When you look at the Old Testament, you see this uh, pronouncement of one is going to come in the line of David. This is messianic. Number two, Elohim is called uh, my servant. Uh, that's a really close connection, Isaiah 22 to Isaiah 40 to 53. Time and time again, it appears 13 times the Messiah is called my servant, the one who's going to come and redeem his people. Elohim here is given uh, three, administration over the, the people of God. It's an almost similar language to that great uh, verse, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, the one we always say at, at Christmas time. For to us, unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. The same language that's used in Isaiah 22, uh, 22. And the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness 
from this time forth and forevermore. So if you're a original audience, you hear the key of David, you're thinking that this is relating to Elohim, which is a, 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 a prophecy of the Messiah that is to come. And lastly, as one scholar notes, the main topological correspondence between Elohim and Christ is that Christ, like Elohim, is to have absolute power over the divinic throne as king. Whereas Elohim's control was primarily political, Christ was to be primarily spiritual, as well as ultimately universal in all its aspects. Where Elohim was to rule over Jerusalem, Judah, and the house of David, Christ's sovereignty was to extend over all peoples. Here's the point. Don't miss this. The people are being reminded to judge their existence in relation to the one who holds the keys, not the religious elite, not the culture. We judge our lives based on Christ and Christ alone. He is the only way we can enter in to his kingdom. The second thing we see here about the Lord Jesus is the one who honors the weak. He's the one who honors the weak. So he's establishing right at the get-go that if you want to come into his sanctuary, you have to come through Jesus. But he's not, he goes on to explicitly state that he's opened the door for them. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Hear me. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus knows the works, knows the hearts of the people of Philadelphia. He reassures them that he has given them access into the kingdom of God. He has set before them an open door. And no one, not even the, the powerful religious elites, the Jews in this passage, can shut it. The church here has little power. They were weak in the eyes of the world. They were small. They were apparently insignificant. And yet, they have kept the word of Christ. They have not denied his name. Here we see one of the most important determiners of success in Christ's church. Faithfulness to God's word. That's what we want to be known for. Faithfulness to God's word. So we ask ourselves, are we faithful to the word of God? We must determine our success not from the benchmarks given by denominations or a local newspaper, but by our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? What does faithfulness to the Word of God look like? Let me offer two. Number one, first, we hold fast to the gospel. We believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, God's sanctuary. There is salvation in no other name. No one is justified by their works. People are only saved by repenting of their sins and trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only hope for salvation. Now, if you say that in our culture, what you're going to hear is people saying that's harsh, that's closed-minded, that's narrow. There may be some of you here who, who think the same way, who, who don't identify with the Christian, Christian faith. If, if that's you, let me just ask you to, to look at it from the opposite end. Not looking at it as harsh or, or narrow or closed-minded, but I want you to look at it as beautiful, as, as glorious and humbling for what it truly means. We all know the sinfulness of our own hearts. 
We know our pride, our jealousy, our anger, our lust, our greed, our self-centeredness. It's one of the reasons why we confess our sin every week is because we know what's in there. We cannot deny that we've done wrong. Now, our world wants you just to overlook these sins and say, we're all sinners, it's no big deal. But God can't. God cannot allow evil into his holy sanctuary. How can you enter heaven if you are impure and and unholy? He stands at the door and guards the purity of his kingdom, guards the purity of his sanctuary. And we know we are impure. So how can we enter through the door? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has set before you an open door. Jesus came and lived a pure life. He perfectly obeyed God in every way. And although he was pure and innocent, he chose to die as a criminal on a cross. He chose to pay for your treason against the holy God. And the impurity of all who would turn and trust in him. He died for sinners. If you came this morning and you were weighed down with your sin, know this, Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. Wretched, impure sinners. And now, salvation is open to us. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead so that we would always know that there is an open door that is set before us. It doesn't matter what sin you committed last week. If you come to Christ, you will be forgiven. You'll be counted as holy and and blameless in the eyes of God. Friend, Jesus has set before you an open door. All he's asking you to do is to walk through it. That is not narrow. That is not closed-minded. That is loving. That is glorious. And that is beautiful. Come to Christ. Beloved, we must continue to be faithful to that gospel. There is no other way to heaven but through Christ. We must not be diverted into, from our mission to proclaim the goodness and glory of the gospel of grace. We may not be the biggest church in the United States, but we are a faithful church. And we can always preach the biggest God In the States, God is glorious. Let us judge our success by the one who holds the key. Number one, how do we be faithful is to hold fast to the gospel. Number two, we want to hold fast to the whole counsel of God's word. Are we trusting in God's word to live a holy life? Even speaking to to a brother before, um, before the service, we were talking about the works of Christ. And so often, people's lives don't look like Christ. They look much like the world. It's because people think that once I come to Christ, that's all I need. I'm saved by grace. Well, if you're saved by grace, guess what? That grace should be transforming to your life, and you should look differently. It's easy to say that we love God, but it's harder to to show that we love God by loving and sacrificing for God's people. We can test our own love for God by testing our own love for God's people. Are we a loving church? Are you willing to lay down your preferences for the sake of others? Are you willing to lay down your time to serve others? Are you willing to lay down your money for others? Are you willing to open your home for those who are in in need? Are you willing to show that you have been transformed by the gospel of grace by living unto Christ? 
We may be small in number, but we, make, we can make an eternal impact when we hold true to the gospel and hold true to his word. As we reflect and radiate the love of God to our, to our world. Number three, the one who protects his people. The one who protects his people. Beloved, our labor for Christ is never in vain. The Lord holds out promises for us again and again. The pro- he promises that if we hold fast to him, he will vindicate, vindicate us from our enemies and protect us from the day of trial. Look at Revelation 3, 9 and 10. Behold, I am making those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Here again, we see that the Jews are called the synagogue of Satan. They were claiming to be Jews, but they're not. Paul spends significant time in Romans chapter 2 saying a true Jew is one inwardly, not outwardly. It's not circumcision external, it's the circumcision of the heart. We live a transformed life. A, A true Jew is one inwardly, not outwardly. These Jews in Philadelphia were claiming that they held the key to the to the sanctuary. They were trusting in one's ability to keep the law. If you keep the law, you're in the sanctuary. But we know that no one is justified by the works of the law. Jesus promises that one day these Jews will bow down before these Gentile believers. And they will know that God has extended his love to them in the Messiah. The faithful saints will participate with the angels and with the, the, the king of kings himself in the judgment of God's enemies. These Jews claim to know God, but they, ha- they will be proven wrong. There are many in our day who claim to know God and will be proven wrong on Judgment Day. I pray that's not you. I pray that when you say that you believe in God, that there's an inner desire in your heart to live unto Him. Not just to say that you do and then live any which way you want, but to desire to know God, to love Him, and have that love transform your life. God will vindicate His people, but He will also protect His people. Look at Revelation 3.10. It says that because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, we've been studying Revelation for a long time now, and I haven't really even brought this idea up, but Revelation 3.10 probably has some of the most commentary in the entire Bible. And it really is coming to this idea of the millennium. Right, And in, in, in the book of Revelation, there's three main uh, ways to view the ending of uh, the world. Okay? You have a pre-millennial, right, that Christ returns before a thousand-year reign. You have a post-millennial that Christ will come after a thousand-year reign. Or an ah-millennial position, meaning that, that, Christ, that, that a thousand years is more of a literal, not a literal, but a figurative uh, number. There's going to be several times when we kind of study this book that we're going to kind of dive into this this idea. I'm not going to spend a ton of time explaining those in in depth here. Um, But what I want you to see here is one of the the, the primary positions in terms of an interpretation that pushes forward a a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture. Okay? That means that 
that one day when Christ comes, that the, the people of God are going to be taken up in, into heaven for a, a season and then come down and, and judge, judge the earth. This view was uh, really kind of part of a theological system called dispensationalism. It was kind of uh, perf- uh, really taught by John Derby in the late 1850s. Um, and it was popularized by the Schofield Study Bible that really kind of came on in the early 1900s and really kind of was probably used by most Baptist churches in the 1940s and the 1950s. So when we look at this verse, okay, let me read it again. I want everyone to read it with me. 310. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, the key question is, does Jesus mean he will protect them from the trial by removing them from the trial or by providing safekeeping through the trial? That's the key question. Okay, is Jesus going to protect them by taking them out of it or is he going to protect them by taking them through it? That's the key question. As I said before, there's a number of commentaries that have numerous ideas of what this verse is. I can't unpack all of those. I can just tell you what I believe. This is teaching. Okay? Here's why I believe that from this, the context of this letter and from the rest of Scripture, that what Jesus is teaching here, that he will keep his people safe from the trial that is coming through the world by keeping them through the trial. Here, the church in Philadelphia has kept God's word during trial. So God will keep them in the midst of trial. The same way that the church has held fast in the midst of this trial is the same way that that Jesus will keep the church in the midst of their trial. It's almost identical to the the idea that Jesus' is high priestly prayer in John 17, 15. It says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. A biblical theme that's kind of woven throughout Scripture is that God sustaining and growing his people through trial rather than removing them from trial. You can look at saint after saint after saint that was not removed from trial, but that was sustained in the midst of trial. We know that in the Bible, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will face persecution. So I interpret this verse as a reference to God sustaining his saints during the trial that is coming upon the earth, spiritually protecting them in their pursuit of Christ. Meaning that they will not fall away in the midst of this trial. They will hold fast to Christ. God will keep his people. Revelation, this whole entire book, shows that God will protect them from the wrath of God as they experience the wrath of the dragon, the wrath of Satan. Grant Osborne summarizes this well. I'm just going to to read this. I think it's going to be on the screen behind you. It says, It is certainly true that saints are the focus of intense persecution, indeed martyrdom, from the dragon and his followers. There is a great difference, however, between the wrath of God and the wrath of the dragon. Throughout the New Testament, persecution is seen as the believer's lot. Indeed, their great privilege. In Revelation, martyrdom is seen as a victory over Satan. Not a defeat. As when he put Christ on the cross, Satan defeats himself whenever he takes the life of one of the saints. Therefore, the point is that the Philadelphia church, identified with all faithful believers here, will be protected from the wrath of God against unbelievers, but not from the wrath of Satan. 
And this protection is within and not the removal from that wrath. If you want to know more about this, come find me and we'll spend some time in the Bible. Okay, But I think the context here is that the church was faithful to Christ, therefore God will be faithful to them in the midst of the trial, not a removal from it. He continues even here to encourage the weak and this faithful church. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He's again encouraging the church to hold fast to him and to his promises. He wants them to remain steadfast in the midst of trial so they will receive the crown of life. Almost identical to James 1 12. Philadelphia here is known for its games and its festivals. So this imagery of, of, of a crown would have had special relevance. Friends, God is asking us to persevere in Christ. To hold fast to him. What else can, where else can we turn? I mean, where else can the church turn if he's the one who holds the keys? When he opens the door, no one can shut it. And when he shuts it, no one can open it. Where else can you turn? Forget what is behind, beloved, and press on towards what is ahead, towards the door of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Where are you tempted to waver in your trust for Christ? Friend, wherever you are tempted to turn, it's not worth it. Hear me. Wherever you are tempted to turn, it is not worth it. Remain in Christ. Lastly, the one who promises his name. The one who promises his name. As I said before, Jesus is full of promises. I love how the Lord cares for us in this way. Uh, we should look often to how God has, has promised to persevere and care for us in the days ahead. Hear these promises that the Lord has given his church. The one who conquers. I will make him like a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This church was threatened to be expelled from the sanctuary of God. But here God has promised that they would be a pillar in the temple of God. It's, it's like the language of Isaiah 22 again. Remember, this is the, the backdrop of this, this letter where Elikim was fastened like a peg in a secure place. Now, the, back, the backdrop of Philadelphia is that it was known to be a place with a lot of earthquakes. There was a devastating earthquake in A.D. 17, so bad that the, that the Roman Empire said, hey, listen, we don't want your taxes for five years so that you guys can rebuild this, this place. I mean, it was always known for those devastating earthquakes and then the aftershocks. So the people would always run to the hillside for protection when these earthquakes would start. So, here the, the context here. That God says these people who, who never really have a permanent, uh, a permanent uh, place, it's always been temporary because they're always fleeing these earthquakes, God says, I will make you a secure pillar. And you will never leave my kingdom. Now, if you're a, a member of that church, of that city, this would have had a special importance. I just love how Jesus gives us specific encouragements when we follow him. The saints here will also be given the name of God and the name of the city of God and the new name of Christ. To have the name of God is to belong to him. We, beloved, do not belong to this world. 
We belong to Christ. We belong to His kingdom. We do not belong to this world, but we belong to the citizen, uh, we belong to Christ in heaven. The name of the New Jerusalem here is significant as it symbolizes our citizenship belongs there. We know what Paul says, our citizenship is not of this earth. It is in heaven. Therefore we live as heavenly creatures, right? Having been remade by the Spirit of God to live holy lives under Christ. But it says here that we're also given the new name of Christ. Think about how Incredible this is, that God gives us his name. You, who are a rebel, are a sinner, who've done evil in the eyes of God, he says, I want you to belong to me. I want to give you my name. Beloved, that should undo us, how kind and merciful God is to us. We are sinners deserving of eternal wrath, and God shows us mercy by giving us his name. We are no longer slaves. We are now sons. We are no longer seen as sinners, but saints belonging to the new Jerusalem. So, beloved, what is true success? A nice home, a nice car, a nice retirement. True success is being faithful to God. True success is to hold fast to the one who holds the key of the kingdom. True success is loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. True success is loving your neighbor as yourself. Do not be deceived by our culture and the idol of temporary success. But let us live for the forever king who promises us a forever place in his forever kingdom, to experience his forever glory. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us find true success. Help us be faithful to Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.